thanks for tuning in to the Left of Greg podcast. I am Brian Marin, the host and creator of the show. As always, I will be joined by human behavior expert, Mr. Greg Williams, who the show is affectionately named after. Here in the Left of Greg show, our goal is to increase your advanced critical thinking skills through a better understanding of what we call human behavior, pattern recognition, and analysis. If you'd like to find out more about what that is, you can check out our website at arcadiacognorati.com or by following us on Facebook at HBPRA or on Twitter at A underscore Cognorati. You can also check out the videos of the podcast on the Left of Greg YouTube channel where we also post some short clips on some of the concepts that we talk about during the show. The links to everywhere I just mentioned are in the episode details, so go ahead and check them out while you're listening along. If you have any questions or would like us to cover a specific topic, please reach out to us at leftofgreg at gmail.com. On today's episode, we are joined by retired U.S. Army General Dana Petard. General Petard is a graduate of West Point Military Academy and has held numerous command positions from platoon to division level. In 2014, he was the Joint Force Land Component Commander in Baghdad, Iraq, leading the fight against ISIS. On the show, General Petard discusses everything from his successful suicide prevention efforts to the book he co-authored called Hunting the Caliphate. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, sir. Well, thanks for uh, coming on with uh, uh, Greg and uh, myself today. Uh, we appreciate your time hopping on here. Uh, you know, we're going to get into a little bit about your career and you've done and books and you do all kinds of commentating and, and all kinds of stuff. But I think just because we're sticking with this month for a lot of our podcasts, what we're doing is, is the resiliency or resilience month um, for us. So that's kind of our overarching theme, I guess. And I know you have some background in in some of the things that you've done in, in the army, uh, with a suicide prevention program. So kind of want to start a little bit on there and, and kind of start with uh, a little bit of history of you and Greg and, and kind of how, you know, some of the army ASAP programs or anything you have with that. Well, and, and, uh, Brian, I'll, I'll kick it, uh, yeah. uh to general Petard, if that's okay. Yes. I was lucky enough to, to meet, uh, uh, the general when he was in charge of Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, we were down there, uh, doing the pre-deployment uh, troop training uh, for situational awareness and human behavior pattern recognition analysis. Uh, he was a gracious toast. Uh, you know that uh, agencies and organizations start taking on the uh, the, the culture and, and the look and the feel of their leader. And El Paso was going through a huge transformation then. And uh, I, I credit uh, General Petard being instrumental in, in not only bringing ASAT to El Paso, but uh, also to imbuing the, the principles in his uh, and is deploying troops. It was a pleasure to, uh, to teach down there. Very kind of you. Um, truly a team effort, but um, resiliency was very important, but so was our uh, no preventable soldier death campaign. And I can, I can go into that or uh, yeah, we can well, talk about that later. I, I think we should, should jump right mm -hmm. into that, sir. Um, I know some of the, cause some of the programs you started down there in El Paso went on to other organizations. And of course, Greg and I uh, did some of the suicide prevention using uh, our skill set, the HBPRNA up at Fort Lewis, but kind of talk about some of those uh, uh, programs and issues and how you, how you as a kind of a commander there tackled the, the, the subject. Uh, for me, it really started um in 2010, shortly after taking uh, command of Fort Bliss and eventually 1st Armored Division, and two, two uh, events, I think, um, really struck a chord. Uh, one was the redeployment of, uh, I think it was an Air Defense Battalion, <clears throat> came back from the Middle East after a, 
I think it was a six month, six to nine month deployment. And there just were a number of, of issues as far as high risk behavior that, uh, that uh, led to at least one suicide, one uh, death by, uh, I think it was a motorcycle accident, another was um, So that certainly was a, an event that just piqued my, my interest. interest. Um, where I am, they're doing a test right now, so please excuse that in the background. No, no worries. Uh, the second item was uh, we had a, a soldier who was um, having some, some issues at home, uh, domestic issues at home, and uh, ended up barricading himself in his home uh, with, uh, with a weapon. And I had just taken over then, so I, I drove over to see what was going on. And when I went there, the police were outside there uh, trying to uh, get him to, to put down his weapon. And I, there was no one really from the military there. Uh, this was in El Paso, it was off post of Fort Bliss. And then uh, our, our soldier ended up turning the weapon on himself and killed himself really right there on his porch. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was those two um, events that struck such a chord of, well, okay, what are we doing now? Um, as far as not, not just suicide, but preventable deaths, period. Right. Uh, so that's what helped, uh, you know, as far as the emphasis, at least for me, on beginning this, this pathway of, of this goal of, um, of being a turning Fort Bliss, and even El Paso, we're trying to turn Fort Bliss into really the most healthy, fit, and resilient community in the nation. We said not just in the Army, but in the nation, which right. obviously is a tall goal. So that yeah. was huge. But it was, some of it was about uh, high-risk behavior. Um, and initially, I think the, the armies uh, looked at that and said, yeah, you're right, high-risk behavior. So all we have to do is find those soldiers um, who, who came in under the waiver, uh, you know, waivers in, oh, between, say, 2004, 2009. Um, and that's, that'll solve our problem. We can screen uh, better, and we can make sure that we um, uh, separate those soldiers who are waived. Well, again, as we started doing different things, uh, our community uh, health promotion council was huge. I made that mandatory for all uh, brigade level commanders, separate battalion commanders, and the entire community at Fort Bliss, as far as leadership, where we looked at every single case of an accidental death of a soldier. And one thing that, that came out of that was uh, one of the doctors from the local hospital, our military regional hospital, William Beaumont, uh, said that, you know, suicide ideations, suicide behavior is, 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 is not limited just to people who, quote, have problems, unquote. It's really right. every, everyone. And so it was based on that where we focused our programs, not just on a select population, but everyone. And so I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Good. Brian, if I can add just a, one thing, you, you never want to be a, a subject matter expert in certain fields. And sometimes uh, God, uh, Buddha, Vishnu, Allah, pushes you into a subject matter expertise, whether you're ready or not. And, and uh, uh, General Batar, Dana is certainly uh, that subject matter expert when it comes to this topic, Brian. Uh, in 2012, Fort Bliss uh, uh, earned the Living Works Community of Excellence Award for effective suicide prevention and intervention programs. And uh, according to the Department of Defense statistics, Fort Bliss had the Army's 
uh, lowest uh, suicide rate during that right. time. And Brian, you'll remember when we were up during that same 2010 to 2013, uh, uh, and, and Dana, when we first got into it up at JBL, I'm McCoy uh, going direct with the, the soldiers during the suicide stand down and specifically targeting the army with science. Um, there was this island of misfit toys uh, mentality that, that if you showed any signs of PTSD or if you came in under a certain program, that immediately you were, you were flagged and nobody likes being flagged. And so I think that made it all the harder. Uh, you know, uh, we, we look at suicide as a, a function of leadership as well, and as sure as you do. And it's really hard digging out from under that onus when all of a sudden you're put into a group that is highly likely, uh, uh, you know, for these behaviors. And, and we, that was a, a hard thing for us to overcome at first. I agree. And you mentioned stats. I mean, in 2010, and I didn't realize at the time until we looked at it, uh, Fort Bliss had one of the highest suicide rates in the Army in 2010. Right. And the Living Works Award in 2012, by that time, we had the lowest rate, not just in the Army, but in the Department of Defense uh, for a major installation. But part of it, and in fact, it ended up being like 32 different initiatives, which were all in different ways interconnected. But the bottom line was, once we figured out that anybody is at risk, then that, that, that changed the entire approach. So if anybody's at risk, then um, that's one stat. But there's another stat that if you can get someone in treatment, there's a 95% chance that they won't take their lives, either by suicide or, you know, uh, even high-risk behavior and, and accidental death to an extent. So, so the mission then became how do you get care as close to our soldiers and family members as you can? And that's where we started moving in behavioral health teams into the barracks so that people would feel comfortable. Then trying to change the culture, uh, which was, you know, work in progress, but building a culture of seeking help. You know, everywhere you go in Fort Bliss, there'd be a sign that says, seeking help is a strength. Um, but that was just the beginning. It had to change as far as commanders. Uh, I started certainly at, at, at my level, but we wanted to get all the way down to squad leaders so that people would feel comfortable and that they wouldn't be flagged. And at that time of Fort Bliss, we refused to flag anybody who did that. And in fact, even PCSing someone, we wanted to make sure that before PCSing a person who was seeking help, we worked with the Army, we would work with Human Resources Command to make sure that that, that was okay with the soldier, um, that if they needed more treatment, then they stayed at Fort Bliss longer. But in some cases, the problem might have been at Fort Bliss, so they wanted to leave. So we, right. we worked with that too. But it was, again, it was getting uh, soldiers and family members as close to getting help and need as possible, getting, getting those assets to as close to them as possible. Yeah, I, and that's a, that's a good, good point there on how you did it. And I didn't, it's amazing that you had, you know, so many, I think you said 35 different, you know, initiatives that kind of all somehow started working together, which is incredible because, um, you know, a big thing is when, you know, you, you taught you you mentioned changing the culture to seek help and and a lot of that that falls on that leadership and i i recently met someone he's he's still active duty um uh, he's in the special operations community but he's a sergeant major and you know he said you know he made it mandatory that every quarter um everyone in the team everyone has to sit down with uh you know the psych psychiatrist you got to sit down with the psych mandatory once a quarter i don't care if you sit in there for 15 minutes and don't say anything but you got to go in there and so he said i'm going to 
I'm going to lead from the front. And I'll be the first one to do it. So he's telling me, he's like, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go in there. I'll sit in there for 15, 20 minutes and walk out. He goes, well, two and a half hours later, <laughs> I walk out, <laughs> you know, like went home and apologized to my wife. And I was like, well, that, you see, he's like, you know, you, you have issues that you don't even like, you think you're fine and that other people need help. And it turns out, well, wait a minute, I, I should probably be in here talking to someone for a while. But I think that's that's hugely important. And because in like we just said, in that same time frame, there were still huge issues. That's why I, I don't remember what year it was. I think it was 2014, Greg, maybe when we were up in Fort Lewis. Yeah, 13, 14. 13, 14 timeframe. Yep. And so, you know, and, and I'm sure you've seen this with other initiatives within the Army or DOD as a whole is, you know, how do you guys have a successful uh, uh, program that's working rapidly in one place down at Fort Bliss? How does that not get replicated and sent out to other areas? And I, and I know there's going to be some differences at each location, it's a little bit different, but why can't they take that and go, hey, look, here's a model for success. Let's rapidly implement this. We talked about that at the time, uh, the senior army, army leadership uh, within Forcecom with all division commanders and corps commanders. Mm -hmm. uh, we took advantage of some things that were already there, like the comprehensive soldier and family fitness. Right. Uh, the, the five, I think it's five areas, five functions of that, which we, we really took that seriously and even uh, started a a uh, wellness fusion campus where that was all together, but that was all tied tied to again where where can you where can a soldier where can a person family member go to seek help? Uh, we even extended the hours on all sorts of things. I mean, Fort Bliss had more 24-hour things that were open than any other place in the army, including a 24-hour restaurant. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Talked to Denny's about having that open 24 hours. 24-hour fitness center, which you really only see when you're overseas, right. but that is there at Fort Bliss, a 24-hour fitness center, yet another place that soldier had a problem, people could visit, there were just places that they could touch onto. Um, another thing that really helped us was using ASSIST training, if you're familiar with that. ASSIST stands for, I think, Applied Suicide Intervention Skills. Right. I saw a success with that. I know that's a proprietary thing. So it didn't have to be the exact assist program, but what, one thing that came out of that is uh, the ability to be able to um, kind of see if someone's having an issue and what, what signs to look for. The Army's goal on that, I think, was to have maybe 5%, maybe 2% of a population to, to have that, one per platoon. Um, we ended up saying it was so successful, I said, everybody. So our goal was 100% of the yeah. post, which is, is huge. So in in-processing, we added another step, and that was a side uh, assist rating, which is a two-and-a-half-day course. Pushed all the leaders to do that, pushed everybody. So before I left there, we were above uh, we were above 65% and trying to get to that 100% goal. Um, but by doing that, suddenly every single soldier, we also opened up the family members, but every single soldier was now a censor was now a sister themselves were for others. Um, and we started getting more and more people saying, hey, I've got an issue. Hey, I've got a problem. Oh, that's what we wanted. We wanted that kind of thing identified so that people could get help. Um, and then people, at least at that time, did not feel threatened by it. Yeah, and that that goes into one, the, the training to identify those pre-event indicators. And then two, obviously, you created that 
that culture of no, it's okay to talk about this. This is a big thing. But um, what's interesting, what you just brought up is a lot of people don't recognize is, you know, what you just said of having 24 hour facilities, right? And not just a 24 hour hotline, meaning the gym is open 24 hours, the, the Denny's is open 24 hours, that those those small things like that, that we don't, a lot of people don't don't think of as, as, uh, as important, or what does that have to do? It's no, it's we're keeping this community open and aware, you have places to go, you're, you're connected, no matter what time of day, what time of night, there's somewhere you can go get a workout and go, go eat waffles, you know, whatever that that is, is better than sitting there alone, and and you know focusing on the negative feelings that you're having and i think that absolutely has to do with connections exactly connections with i'm sorry the connections with people and as we did a time analysis of when uh the majority of our uh suicide ideations that were at least reported uh and accidental deaths occurred they were you know somewhere between uh i think 9 p.m and 4 a.m in the morning the, yeah. the vast majority so it's how do you still make, cause during the day you, you have the connection you yep. do with people. Yep. So even on the wellness fusion campus, the chapel which was just more controversial than it should have been, but the chapel was 24 hours. Uh, because, uh, when I asked about, well, chapel, chaplain on duty. So yeah, we have a chapel on duty. So I called the line. And so, yeah, it was a chaplain. I think I woke him up or his wife answered the phone and said, yeah, he's right here. It's like, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. We want a chaplain on duty at the at the chapel 24 hours who can talk to anybody whether they're atheist or they believe or not believe they right. don't care right. they can be you know devil worshiper doesn't matter talk right. to them um so that was also part of the 24 hours we had uh, extended hours in a library um so a lot of things were open later and later if i could have made everything 24 hours i wouldn't have but that wasn't uh, quite cost effective but right but, um at least the gym the uh the denny's we had the um, uh, gas stations and stop and shop, uh, the main one, 24 hours. Again, people can connect in the chapel. Do you know one, one of the things that's uh, funny when I, when I hear you talking about this, sir, is uh, going back to Combat Hunter and the implementation of uh, uh, advanced situation awareness. You, you had the, the Marine side, you had Conway and Madison, General Amos and Dunford, and you had the Army side, you had General Brown and Odierno, uh, uh, the the guy that came in after you, General McFarland, Sean McFarland's a great guy. And a lot of those uh, people in the Navy, Admiral Harwood, they all decided to become uh, 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 mentors for the program and, and, and uh, disciples and pushing it forward. And the funny thing was, even though it was for increase in situational awareness, sense-making, problem-solving, adaptability, resilience, you still had pushback. And you still had some camps that maybe were close to the flagpole or maybe were further away from it that we're like, wait a minute, this is not how things are done. So sometimes even when a program or a plan or an idea is gaining traction or it's a good thing or it's the, uh, it, you know, it, it starts in the grassroots approach, you're not going to get everybody excited about it. And, and by involving the community, by starting that insurgency at the lowest level, I, I think you really, uh, I think you really cracked the nut on that. Uh, and, and I think it spread from Fort Bliss. Well, I I mean, it, it seemed to work, but we, we tried a lot of things. And even at your analysis, you know, I was like uh, fired at by leaders in the Army about your analysis. I think, I, I think the goal in the Army was, the, what, 100% a year, whatever. Uh, we made it 800%. So you're, you're pissing all the time. Yeah. Uh, again, it was identified. <laughs> it's what you do with the data. I mean, not trying to throw people out. It's trying to now start a conversation of, hey, you know, you came up hot. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, and with people knowing that, 
um, that also change some behavior. If you know that you're going to be pissed often, um, it makes a difference. It costs more money uh, for us with the you know the whole program, ASAP program, even more. But um, but it also helped out. It also contributed. And yeah, and and I think. Uh you know, when we, that, that's what it comes down to. You said, Hey, it costs more money. Um, obviously everything is tied to funding that's in, you know, military private sector as well. But, you know, we look at it as you're going to, you're going to pay either way. Right. So, so how do you want to pay for it? Do you want right. to pay in that prevention? Do you want to pay in training? Do you want to pay in developing people? Or do you want to, Hey, like you just said, if we're just going to hear cycle them up and kick guys out, well, that, that, that costs more money in the long run. Oh yeah. To train new soldiers. I mean, so yeah. let's keep the ones we've already trained and, and make them much more resilient. No. And, and that, that's a, that's the, that's the idea too. And I, I see that, that, but that, that numbers thing is, is always uh, no matter, no matter where you're at, that's always going to be a factor. Right. Cause I looked at that when we briefed some folks with uh, in, in Chicago as part of their, their police department, even, even they just decided, okay, well, you know, this was a couple of years ago, we're going to hire, uh, you know, a thousand new officers in the next whatever amount of time. It's like, okay, well that over, over the course of their career, what does that thousand officers cost the city? Probably a billion dollars, right? Over 20, 30 years, at least. And you're going, what if you took that money and just invested in the process and the people that you have right now, um, would you get a greater return out of that? And I, I always think that is because, you know, you're, you, it's better off going with people versus let's look at a number amount. But I, and then of course that it can be difficult, especially in the army when you have, Hey, these are, this is the table of organization. This is how many we're supposed to have. This is what's documented. This is what's allocated by Congress, you know, so that can get, that can get tough, but, but to take it on there is to go, Hey, we're going to make everyone pee in a cup, you know, eight times a year. Um, that's huge. Uh, and then just to have the attitude of, all right, cause it gives you a more realistic view of what's actually going on. What's the actual ground truth. And as a commander, I would think that would be extremely important. I agree. And so, the community connection too was important. And now Pat's working with us. Um, we, we had, I think you remember at Fort Plus, uh, Freedom Crossing, at least at the mm -hmm. time was the only, it was the largest, but the, but I think it was the only at the time, uh, outdoor mall in the army uh cool model uh, including it's really, the, really nice i remember yeah i remember when that was built it was still new i think we, one of the last time we were there. actually there we were actually yeah. there on a, on a weekend doing a uh, doing a task force that was going forward and it yeah. snowed so we actually had inches of snow on those wonderful benches and had outside <laughs> eating yeah. area, which i never oh. imagined i would see in texas oh in el paso yeah but buffalo yeah. wild wings i mean a tin screen yeah. theater uh irish pub so but the uh, part of our um, uh, dilemma initially was they get people there. So mm -hmm. we basically opened up the post to El Paso. Oh, there was so much pushback from uh, from traditional folks on Fort Bliss of, oh, you're going to let you're going to let them in. I said, them I mean the American people who we serve. I just want translation. <laughs> but, but the problem, the problem was, at least for me, was because I was from El Paso. Right. I grew up. You could just drive through Fort Bliss easily. And so you felt a better connection. So. We did. Uh, all you had to do was show your identification, and people said, you know, that's yeah, the crime rate's going to go up. And you know, they're right. It did, the the crime rate did change, but it went down surprisingly. Yeah. It went down. There you and go. People were just more aware. Uh, civilians who came on felt like it was such an honor, but suddenly, Freedom Crossing on Thursday and Friday nights was kind of the place to be, uh, at least initially. Before you figure out what else you want to do, you know, other clubs you want to go to, but that Irish pub there, Buffalo Wild Wings, um, 
And it, and then suddenly it was a place for many of our male young soldiers to meet women from El Paso, and, you know, you all sorts of people. But it became kind of a, a thing. Um, and so we started having more outdoor concerts there. It it just kind of took off. Um, but the the goal though, and I got this from Dr. Barbara Van Dalem, is getting more community connections with our soldiers so they feel less isolated. Because um, people can come out of the barracks and go at least Freedom Crossing and then figure out where they want to go from there. And that, I thought, was a huge success. Yeah, we, we, uh, we were lucky enough to uh, spend a lot of time down there working with JTF North. Uh, we did the border hunter study down there. Uh, the, the Sergeant Major's Academy is down there. Uh, uh, there's so many things that are there on and off post. So how hard was it when you had a turn the key of the uh the keys of the first armor division over over to uh uh sean mcfarland was it a was it bittersweet because you were headed for our scent during that time i think i was uh but you know sean mcfarland and i have known each other since we were teenagers um oh, his oh. wife is from el paso uh from uh parkland high school i went to eastwood high school so I, we've we've been friends for so long uh we have different ways of doing things uh but mutual respect and friends so we treat it like it was a transfer of authority, you know, in theater, uh, where we did a 10-day overlap. I asked him to do that. He said, "Really? Do we have to do that?" You know, I don't know if you know him, but his wry sense of humor. You know, I said, "Do I?" Yeah, yeah, you do. Uh, so went over everything from you know the largest training area in the army, so you could see the the, the towns, the, the potential for for training, and then going over these programs. Some of which he kept, some of which he didn't. Um, and I don't know if it was on his watch or the watch afterwards. But at some point, uh, they close the, the post back up, which is so easy to do. It's so easy right. to fall back on the, uh, we got to be, secu- we, we gotta, it's, it's security, it's security. Well, there's a security in having people there too. Uh, so that changed. But no, I, it, it wasn't, I won't say bittersweet. It was, hey, there's still a lot more to do. And I'm so glad that a person as competent and as brilliant as Sean McFarland is the next person up. You know, it's That's handing great. the baton on. That's, no, that's great. How I looked at it. He, uh, uh, Shelly and I, and and uh, and Sean McFarland and his wife, uh, we went down, and I, I just present memory can't re- recollect. There's a a great restaurant in El Paso where there's a tree grown right in the middle of the restaurant, and it's close to to uh, uh, you know the the center of it is in one area, and the the other uh, half in the other. And so we were having some great Mexican food down there. Uh, and not, Mickey uh, and Carlos. Carlos. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And so, uh, so I'm in, I'm in Afghanistan, not, not that much later, uh, uh, after that, that wonderful meal. And he's such a great guy and he's, he's got this sense of humor, like Fred Rogers. And, and so you gotta, you gotta keep up with him because sometimes you don't know when he's getting you. And all of a sudden I get this call and, and, uh, general Allen staff or ISAF says, Hey, listen, you've got a meeting. You got to do this brief and stuff. And I'm like, Hey, I'm teaching. And so they great, take me into this little green zone area. And the first guy that walks out is him. And he goes, Hey, I heard you were in theater and I want you to, I want you to do some stuff. What a gracious guy. What a, what a guy who likes to give back. And uh, you, you, you uh, both are examples of, of generals that were easy to follow, that, that were easy to maintain resilience on your watch. So how do we do that now that you're in public sector? And, and I want to get into that book, Brian, a great book. But how do you do that in public sector? How do you take what you learn uh, uh, on, the, on the streets and on your knees and in, in theater? How do you take that and bring it back to an industry? Oh, you, you continue to serve. I mean, he's now vice president of, I think, General Atomics. I'm right. vice president with Alpha Transmission. Um, wherever you go, you try to make a difference. Um, you know, it's caring, competent uh, leadership, ideally. 
Um, but if I could tell, there's a very quick story uh, of, uh, of three teenagers, um, freshmen in college. Um, the school happened to be West Point, getting ready to do, we were all in gymnastics, about to do a vault. Uh, one of them uh, wasn't, was kind of concerned. He was kind of, a, uh, I won't say afraid to do it, but he, he had some inhibitions. And that was uh, then young cadet uh, Sean McFarlane, 18 years old, and me, young cadet Dana Pittard. And then there was a third one. We were all in line and telling him, you can do it, you can do it. Um, and we all did it. The third one was, was Jimmy McConville. Um, the three of us just sitting in line. So I, as I look back at that, um, I think our army right now is very well served. Uh, General McConville is, is now the chief of staff of the army. Um, and there are leaders who, we, who don't take themselves so serious. They, they care about the right things, which is our, our troops, our families, the mission, and making sure that America is, um, is as well defended as possible. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah we need leaders. In the military, we need leadership in the civilian world, um, and we're there. You you guys probably weren't looking at each other at the time going, you know, <laughs> someday the three of us are all going to have stars. Exactly. But, but that's that's hilarious. Um, so we kind of want to talk a little bit then, too, about, about your book and getting into fighting ISIS, um, all that, because uh, you were, I mean, you were head of pretty much all joint forces back in, it was what, 2014 when you went back over there, I think you went to Baghdad and we started fighting in Iraq again. So, so you wrote a book called Hunting the Caliphate. I know you still, you still are, are kind of keep on top of that situation and what ISIS is doing. So tell us a little bit about that, about your book and, and everything you kind of, kind of did there. Well, well, thank you. I, uh, the book Hunting the Caliphate, it was, uh, I'm a co-author and the, my, my other co-author is, uh, Wes Bryant, who's a, Air Force Special Ops, uh, JTAC, Joint Terminal Attack uh, Controller. Uh, he was the NCOIC of the, um, of the strike cell. But going back in time a little bit, I, uh, when I left Fort Bliss, I ended up deploying to the, the Middle East for a year. Uh, 2013 is when I deployed. And initially it was to Jordan because of what was going on in Syria. That's mm-hmm. when I first, first started uh, viewing ISIS. And I think uh, the American military started at least viewing ISIS, but ISIS was merely one of over 1,100 opposition groups to the Syrian president Bashar Assad. You know, the Syrian civil war began in 2011. Uh, two big groups that, that emerged that uh, were very well organized and we thought very bad was the al-Nusra Front mm-hmm. and ISIS. Uh, ISIS stood for um, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And so I was always curious about, really, there's an Iraq piece of this? They're in Syria now. Well, now roll the tape forward now to uh, 2014. Uh, we observed as, as ISIS uh, came down the Euphrates River Valley, was fighting the Iraqi army and actually took Fallujah. That didn't raise a whole lot of alarms because people thought that the Iraqi security forces could handle it. In fact, President Obama at the time, that's when he made his you know, infamous statement of, well, that's, that's a JV. Uh, describing vice, ISIS at the time. Yeah. At the time, we thought that was pretty serious. I thought that we were going to deploy to Baghdad then. Um, at that point, I moved from Jordan to Kuwait. Um, so we just continued to watch ISIS straight on from January uh, 2014 on. Once ISIS on June 9th uh, invaded northern Iraq, really with literally an army, and took Iraq's uh, second largest city of Mosul of over a million people, and then really defeated 
five Iraqi divisions, four Iraqi army divisions and one federal uh, police division that uh, caused alarm bells throughout the world. Um, and that's when uh, President Obama uh, sent a task force uh, led by me um, to Baghdad, really to assess the situation. I remember the time. Uh, again, this is 2014. At that time, ISIS seemed unstoppable. They seemed like an unstoppable juggernaut. And they were moving from Mosul and North down to Baghdad, down the Tigris uh, River Valley. They, they took Tikrit, and they were moving down on Baghdad. Uh, from the west to east, they were moving through Euphrates River Valley. They were already in Fallujah, just 69 kilometers from Baghdad. Uh, the consensus at the time, believe it or not, both in uh, Washington and then many people in the embassy in Baghdad was that Baghdad was going to fall. And this is 2014, just two years since Ambassador Stevens, uh, unfortunately, and three other Americans were killed in, um, in Benghazi, in, um, in Libya. And the hearings uh, for, I think, it was Secretary of State, uh, former Secretary of State Clinton had just taken place. Um, so there was a lot of concern. So the original reason was sent with 300 special operators and 100 staff was to assess the situation, but primarily to look at evacuation of the embassy. Right. Uh, at the time, there was a, a OSCI, Office of Security Cooperation Iraq, was there. They had 150 people. By the time I got to uh, Baghdad in uh, June 2014, they had already partially evacuated, so they had like 30 there. Yeah. The, embassy, the embassy staff had left. Uh, a huge deal because the, the, our U.S. embassy in Baghdad is the largest embassy, U.S. embassy in the world. Yeah. Um, so getting there, um, uh, again, setting the context, uh, the defense attache on the ground said, ISIS is coming, I, you know, Baghdad's going to fall. It's okay. Uh, so I had a, uh, a video call with uh, General Austin, the CENCOM commander, and then my direct boss, Lieutenant General James Terry, uh, who was in Kuwait, uh, about what do you, what do you think? Uh, so after the first 48 hours, again, my assessment was Baghdad's going to hold. I think the Iraqi security forces can hold Baghdad um, based on the forces coming in. Um, I thought that that could happen. But I said, we have to strike ISIS now. And that's the context of the book. Okay. No, it, it, the, so, so your mission is to protect the Iraqi capital, the U.S. embassy uh, against ISIS, ISIL, Daesh. Uh, for the folks that are listening in, that, that we always ask them to do their homework, uh, know what a caliphate is, know that uh, – uh, that uh, under Sharia law, under uh, Islamic law, they want an independent nation state uh, uh, with an extreme interpretation, let's say. And, and uh, uh, General, I don't think everybody that, that listens to our broadcast, we got a lot of law enforcement, first responders and former military, but I don't know if they understand that, that uh, special operations and, and JTAC uh, have the highest enemy kills uh, counts on the battlefield. And, and that, was, that was your surgical strikes uh, uh, through JTAC that, that made a lot of the, uh, that, 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 that uh, inhibited some of the progress. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, that, that is correct. And in fact, um, I guess just going back a little bit, it was in late June where um, uh, al-Baghdadi stood up in the, the mosque in Mosul and declared the caliphate, uh, yeah. which is a geographical nation state, which really ISIS took over a third of Iraq, a third of Iraq territory and about 25% of serious territory. And it really was stretching from literally the Mediterranean all the way down to Baghdad. And so just the, the outreaches of Baghdad. Uh, but the special ops folks, uh, the reason why we had to go with a strike cell 
was uh, President Obama at the time. Uh, again, he felt like he was elected in 2008 to end wars. So right, right. he reduced our forces in Afghanistan and then uh, completely uh, uh, took out our forces in 2011, which in hindsight uh, was too early, but maybe didn't know that at the time. But the last thing he wanted to do was start another war. So the administration was very reluctant to fight ISIS initially, uh, and for a number of reasons. Some of them were valid. Uh, they didn't want to seem like they were supporting the, uh, the Shia Prime Minister uh, al-Maliki, mm-hmm. who was part of the problem with his harsh policies against Sunnis and all that. So it, it ended up being six weeks before we could actually start airstrikes. But he wouldn't allow boots on the ground, uh, literally. And that's uh, our special operators do that so well as far as advisors advising yeah. the units yeah. in combat. So we wouldn't allow that. So usually with those teams, you'd have a you know forward air controller or JTAC who could control airstrikes. So we then put these, I'll call them these lone wolves, uh, you know these alpha males all together, especially on the special ops side. It was a, a, this combination of Air Force special ops, it was Navy SEALs, you know Army Green Berets, all who were JTAC qualified into this strike cell. You know so you know there's going to be some friction there. And initially, none of them believed that, that it could work like, like it ended up working. Um, we'd never tried, we'd had, you know, the, the concept of strike cells before, but never on this scale uh, where it could support all of central Iraq, all of western Iraq, and the security forces and really, really fight the war as far as the support and airstrikes through there. But once we got the uh, manned and unmanned aerial systems, uh, predator drones and other things that we use, you could see the battlefield so much better than you could when you're just sitting there on one side. Uh, there's an example in the book where Wes Bryant, the co-author, talks about you know, um, a fight he had, a firefight he had in, in Afghanistan. Well, he could never really see the enemy. They're behind the rocks, behind the hill. The Predator drone, you did see that. Um, and it, it was amazing. And so that's one reason why we were able to, to hit and kill so many ISIS fighters. Um, and so many lessons learned out of that. that uh, we, we watched for a while where, where ISIS leaders, uh, yeah, they're bloodthirsty, they're um, um, terrible, but they were also brave and courageous. So they would come down to the battlefield to um, to um, rally their, their fighters. We then eventually watched that and watched that, then took advantage of it. And then these engagements, these fights between the security forces and ISIS, for us, ended up turning into leadership ambushes. And that's why okay. in the first eight months, we were able to kill 40 out of the top 50 uh, ISIS leaders. Um, not just us, it was combination, of, you know, JSOC and others who were involved with that. Now, somebody that, that's watching or listening now uh, might not understand the depths of barbarism of uh, organizations that you were tasked to eradicate. And uh, I, I can share only that uh, I can give you an Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen, one of the common aspects that I saw on the ground were that the sports stadiums that I would go to uh, were built and never had been used for a sporting event, but they had been used as execution pavilions over and over and over. And it was just, it was just a, a testament to the type, the lengths that they would go to. Uh, what, what was your personal experience there? Oh, well, we saw some of that. Um, in fact, obviously the uh, Iraq security forces when those, you know, I said five divisions were defeated, uh, you know, thousands of Iraqi soldiers surrendered. Right. And thought they were taken prisoner and um, and wouldn't see them for a while. But in fact, uh, the vast majority of them were brutally murdered. And uh, that was in 2014. And mm-hmm. didn't really know that until we dug up their mass grave and 
in 2017, and there was like over 2,500 um, Iraqi soldiers who were just just cold-blooded murdered. Um, uh, one, uh, in the book, we talk about uh, where it just happened. This is before we had permission to, to uh, conduct airstrikes. With our predator drones, we were, again, watching ISIS, watching, uh, this was near uh, Sinjar Mountain, and, the, and ISIS was, was literally trying to kill all Yazidis. Um, watch them come into a town. They separated the, and we were watching this, we were, uh, separating the, the, the men from the women and children. Women and children were put on trucks and they left. Uh, you know, later we find out that they became either sex slaves um, or if they wouldn't convert, they, would, they were brutally murdered. Uh, and the, the kids were then enlisted into ISIS fighters or at least helping with ammo and things like that, cleaning toilets. Um, the, uh, the men, uh, again, we thought that they were digging uh, defensive trenches, but in fact, they were end up, they were digging their own grave. Uh, we were shocked as we were looking at the screens there, um, you know, predator drone schemes, as ISIS uh, fighters lined them up and killed them. There was, was 80 of them. And everybody in the room who was looking at that, we had all been, uh, we were all combat veterans, but yeah. we've not ever seen anything that that cold-blooded and bloodthirsty. Yeah, and when you, um, I, I can't imagine actually having to to, to watch it too, uh, versus and, and not be able to do anything yeah. about it. Yeah, and, right. and that was the frustrating thing: is not being able sure. to do anything about it. Sure. Um, but then also, uh, I think in the, the our book, Honey in the Caliphate, points this out that most Americans don't know, and most people don't know, is the timing of the beheadings of the um, American and Western hostages. Mm -hmm. ISIS was was very adept at um, at not only social media, but even uh, worldwide broadcast media of, of giving the impression that, you know, they were winning. And in fact, they were winning initially, they were. Even a year afterwards, when I started writing the book uh, and talking to my um, uh, publisher and literary agent, they said, you act like we're beating ISIS. I said, well, we are. Well, that's not what we hear on the news. It's like, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. But I, I did a good job of that, of changing the, the narrative that they could. But every time there was a defeat of ISIS, on the battlefield, uh, within eh, 48 to 72 hours, maybe 96 hours, they would um, uh, brutally murder and behead an American hostage or Western hostage, and that continued until they literally ran out of hostages. Yeah. Well, what are uh, Brian? Your, what I'd like to, I mean, con continuing on with that, or is you know, since you you know you were obviously on the, the ground commander on all this, and I'm sure you've stayed on top of it. What are your thoughts on where? Uh, ISIS is at right now and what they're trying to do and uh, is there is there an actual because and, and I'll get I'd like to get your opinion on this as well is that you know I look at it as and you can correct me if I'm wrong but as ISIS is an idea more so than an organization right I mean they had organization they have leadership they have people they had physical terrain they, they occupied a third of Iraq at one point uh, but what a lot of people go oh this person pledge allegiance to ISIS and carried out an attack. Well, it's more of a belief so than an actual organization, even though they do have an actual organization. Does that make sense or is that a good way to describe it or what, what are your thoughts? Oh, sure. In fact, as a uh, geographical uh, nation state or a territory owning caliphate, that has been defeated. Right. Um, but one can argue that ISIS as a terrorist network um, still exists and is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. In fact, ISIS is still very well funded. 
Uh, it's not the funding that it used to have. You know, it had funding from uh, oil revenue. It had funding yeah. from uh, the taxes that they, they levied on, on all the, the people that they conquered. Uh, but it is still a very dangerous uh, terrorist network that will that's going to appear again in ungoverned spaces and in failed states. Uh, ISIS exists in Libya, exists at least ISIS affiliates in Somalia. ISIS is in, believe it or not, in Afghanistan. We bring that up in the book. ISIS still has pockets in, in Syria and possibly even the Sunni provinces in Iraq could still be breeding grounds if the Iraqi government and still has the harsh policies against Sunnis and doesn't treat everybody equally. Um, so it, to defeat ISIS at this point is going to continue to take a whole government approach, not just from us, but from our coalition allies. Um, that's why we, we, we cannot take the foot off the accelerator. Uh, keep the momentum going. Keep going after ISIS. I mean, killing al-Baghdadi is, is good, makes you feel good, um, but that's not the end of ISIS. Um, now, the ISIS leaders probably after 2015, certainly after 2016, uh, were more concerned about their own safety than really directing ISIS, which was tough for ISIS. Like I said, ISIS was an uh, organization where the leaders led from the front many times and weren't afraid of showing their face. Well, that changed. Right. Um, and that behavior changed, and that changed the dynamics of the organization. They're still very good on social media. Even in 2014, at one point, they were, they were tweeting 90,000 times, 90,000 tweets a day. Um, and so they were reaching out to populations that, you know, in former times, they would never have been able to reach. They were able to radicalize individuals, uh, Europe, America, and other places. Um, they still have that uh, possibility. They just don't have the same capabilities that they used mm -hmm. to have. Um, so it's more of a regional uh, issue right now. But... We all have to be vigilant. Um, okay. Back back in America and everything else, see something that that looks funny, tell the police, tell the authorities. Um, but they can still radicalize people. Hey, General, you did a great job of laying that out in your book. Uh, you and Wes Bryant. Uh, I highly recommend everybody that's listening now. Uh, or watching us uh, uh, or following the lessons learned uh, to go out and get a copy of this book. The, the uh, protracted strategy, the long-term strategy, it's not over. Uh, Brian, I personally thought uh, uh, back when, when I was thinking of the book and the, the reason I was so excited to get uh, Dana on, uh, Hank Crumpton's Art of Intelligence, uh, legendary book. Hank is a, a, a great thought leader. Uh, Gary Burns is great uh, about uh, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And then this, this is this is going up on the shelf right next to them because it does such a great job. I, I uh, we haven't reached out for for Wes Bryant uh, only because uh, neither of us uh, knew him or knew much about him. Uh, but but the great thing is how you two play off of each other. It's not unlike Brian and I because there's generations of difference. But but you're all ultimately uh, uh, going against the same goal. Uh, so and and, and the one thing I I, I had that's a, kind of an odd thing that turns up Dana is. You were actually military aide to President uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, Shelly and I, our CEO, Shelly, uh, also a uh, former instructor for HPPRNA down in Texas during that time, uh, we, we were uh, charged with pro protecting Hillary and Bill on a detail when he was uh, running for president. Really? In and around, yeah, in and around Detroit, Michigan. And so the great thing was that uh, we actually got to meet him and deal with him. What, can you speak about anything? What was it like being <laughs> uh, President Clinton's aide for that while? Oh, it's it was a couple of years, right? Yeah, I was chosen, uh, uh, you know, went to the White House and the Pentagon for interviews um, in August of 1996. So an election uh, for the second term was November of 1996. So I would have been either his aide or 
Senator Bob Dole one of then right. you know then President Dole's aide. I reported in November 1996, and I actually stayed longer than most. I stayed to uh, the end of the impeachment trial in January 1999. Um, it it was a uh, I keep using the word fascinating, but it was a, a fascinating time. Um, uh, I pinch myself every time going every day going into the White House uh, in the East Wing of the White House, uh, where my office was. Military aides were there was a military aide from every service, including the Coast Guard. Uh, we were all together, and you needed somebody at all times. Uh, uh, one of us had to be within two to five minutes of the president at all times, uh, even at night. Uh, so that included uh, spending the night at the White House. I uh, had a uh, stat sheet. I stayed at the White House 92 nights. Uh, went with President Clinton on 30 different trips. Had 76 different flights on Air Force One. Um, a fascinating experience uh, watching one of the most powerful individuals in the world just operate. Right. Um, I remember in New York City on one day, uh, it was um, in the morning, we had the, uh, uh, it was the Poverty Alliance. We were meeting with um, uh, many African leaders, African American leaders at the uh, Riverside Baptist Church, uh, including Jesse Jackson and others. And, we're talking about the plight of the poor and what could be done. Uh, and then that evening, we're at a fundraiser at a billionaire's uh, penthouse suite uh, with a bunch of other billionaires. It was just you know, sometimes unreal yeah. uh, where the president can go. Uh, but it it was like having a 50-yard line seat and watching, again, one of the most powerful people in the world just operate and do his or her thing. I think we're discussing the outline for your next book, General. <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated. I was I was lucky enough just to bring it up because you know some people try to 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 deal with uh, important places or important people that they've met or like uh, briefing at the D ring in the Pentagon or something, and they try to play it off like it's nothing when it's a life changing experience. You know, it's one of those things that you'll never forget, and you you're just excited about being able to share that with somebody. It was a very cool experience, and I tried to share it with as many people as possible. In fact, when we go to uh, some city, if I if I knew someone like uh, you know former army buddies, uh, former first sergeants, platoon sergeants, squad leaders, company commanders, um, I would get them in line um, to either shake hands with the president coming off of Air Force One, or then staying and getting a tour of Air Force One. So people have That's taken great. tours of the White House, but a tour of Air Force One is is even more difficult than getting into the White House. Uh, so I really tried to share it as much as a, as much as possible. That's that's pretty cool. So so I mean, kind of bringing it to what you got going on right now. I know you're you're a, a VP at uh, Allison Transmission. So are you are you in Indiana? Are you in a? Uh, I am. Our global he- our global headquarters is in Indianapolis, and um, we have uh, defense products in 110 countries around the world. So it keeps me busy. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, pretty cool. Right. We're actually going to oh, be, we're flying into yeah, yeah. We're be there next month. We're DARPA so. next month. Uh, so yeah. hopefully we'll be able to see you while we're swinging through, sir. Yeah. We're, great. Let me know. Yeah. We're going down to, we'll be at uh, that Muscatatuck urban uh, training center there. So I, I know you've got that going it's on. Pretty cool, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Have you been uh, there before? Greg has, and I know all about it, but it's a pretty wild place. So, um, so yeah, the other thing was, are you, are you doing anything right now for the book or anything you want to push out or, or yeah. let people know about or what, what else you have going on? Oh, sure. We have a number of book signings that are going on, uh, coming up. In fact, I have one tomorrow in the Indianapolis area, but I don't know if 
Did this will actually get out to your no, right? They won't, won't be able to hear it by then. But but I can but, put links up to the book and any any oh, sure. engagements. And you you have uh, your you have on your website as well, sir, don't you? Uh, for we the do. book's website, uh, we you do. have those listed as well. Yeah, like in January, we'll be in Texas. February, we'll be in uh, uh, Duke Law School speaking. So Raleigh Durham doing book signings. I think March in Houston. Um, April is Louisville, Kentucky. Um, right, another great city. Yeah. May is uh, Greenville, South Carolina, but different places. Um, I, because I have a full-time job, I can really only do a book signing on a you know one weekend, maybe a, a month. Wes has been um, a little bit more mobile, so he's got even more. But many of these are are together with Wes, and and Wes has really become such a good friend. And it's That's odd how great. we first met, you know, on the book. It's not just one thing where we actually meet, um, but uh, it, it's a compelling read as it's really two different perspectives. Sir, when you're in Kentucky, make sure that uh, make sure that you stay at the Brown or at least visit the Brown. <laughs> yeah. uh, Brian and I Brown got to Hotel. go there. We had an yeah. incredible time right across from our friends at Kindred Health. Uh, it was it was an amazing time. There's so much every place that you talked about. There's so much stories on the ground. Uh, uh, people spend so much time looking in their cell phone. They should be out there on the on the ground investing in America. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. great the Kansas City area too. By the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we appreciate you uh, taking some time out and coming on and talk to us. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. Like I said, you did a lot for, uh, you know, the, the suicide prevention program. A lot of people don't know the successes, you know, you had down there in Bliss, which were huge, which a lot of those didn't get replicated in other places or didn't go through. But, but it, you know, it, it's, uh, I, we like showing those models of, of success and say, look, this is how you do it. You know, and it's no different than, you know, you, you gave up the even opening up the base, right? Well, you know, that was the same problem we were having in Iraq, fighting the insurgency where we said, all right, we started building up these huge fobs and, and distancing right. ourselves from the local population. And then we had to go. And, and hiding in an MRAP. And, well, the, you know, this, is, the, right. this, is, this is wrong. We got to open it up. And, and, and that may feel like we'll be less secure. But in the long run, the net result will actually be more secure. And I think you you showed that even here in the U.S. how to run one of those. And that's the, that's incredible stuff. So so we really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time Thank out you. today. Yeah, and Dana, we'd love, we'd love you to have uh, have you come on again in the future. Uh, give it a I'd few months. Tell us how the how the success was, sir. I'd be honored. I also haven't stopped as far as uh, working with organizations with suicide prevention. I'm with the um, I'm a board member of the Matthew Silverman Memorial Foundation, which is to prevent uh, youth suicides. It's a it goes back and forth between the number one and and number two uh, cause of death for American youth between ages yep. of ten and. 14. Yeah, huge issue. That that's that's great. We're gonna. I'll put up a link to to that uh, as well. So we uh, you, again, sir. we appreciate it. Uh, you coming on, Dana? Uh, thank and you. And thanks for your service too. Thank you. Thank you for yours. <laughs>